Remember the Alamo. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. It's easy to imagine that Texas simply sprang into being just in time for the Texas Revolution, but it was actually part of a larger revolution before that. For 13 years, Texas was under the reign of Mexico, and the men in charge of the state were often as idealistic and flawed as the men who would run the Republic of Texas after them. Today is the conclusion of Mexican Governors of Texas. But first, what's your favorite Texan tall tale? Well, um, I'll have to say Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. Killed him a bar when he was only three. Um, I used to have fake buckskins that my Nana made for me out of a velour-type material. They were, they were very nice, um, complete with the fringe. And I had a fake coonskin cap that I bought at Wonderworld in San Marcos. Um, so, yeah, Davy Crockett's my favorite tall tale of Texas. I, I got my coonskin cap from Six Flags, and I did check. We went to Six Flags uh, the week of Thanksgiving, uh, and they the week at, right after day after Thanksgiving or two days after Thanksgiving, and they did not have coonskin caps anywhere in Six Flags. So it's a shame. Did you check France? We didn't actually go through France this time. <laughs> um. But we did go mm. to the frontier, frontier land, uh, Texas frontier area, and there was no, no, coonskin cap. So sad. There was a twelve dollar s'more that they would cook <laughs> on the fire for you, and I was like, "No thanks, buddy. Keep that." Uh, so my list, mine would go um, that all Texans ride horses to school and have oil wells because apparently that's what people thought of Texans when I was a kid. Well, of course, that's what everyone knows. I'm wearing my cowboy hat right now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and especially... I, I don't know how we're able to record a podcast with our spurs jingle jangling so much. <laughs> yeah. And especially if you do talk to, you know, you work with fo- folks that are international uh, in other countries and they're like, oh, Texas, you have a horse, you have a cowboy. Hey, you're from Texas. You're from <laughs> Texas. Yeah. Well, Jay, are you huh? Yeah. Well, let me say this. My favorite Texan tall tale, there's a little story, maybe you've heard it, about this little history podcast that could. And everybody told their friends about it and said, Texas is simply the best. I'm talking about us. (laughs) I'm putting in that plug, people. Get out there and tell your friends about what we're doing. Grab their phone. Don't ask. Just take and then punch it in. The official date when Jose Maria de la Tona took office is somewhat in question. A decree passed in January 1831 announced his election with Juan Martin de Veramendi as his vice governor. A later announcement shows that he did not assume office until March 1st, 1831, and or maybe as late, and maybe or possibly as late as April 5th. Whenever he took the office, on August 19, 1832, he stepped down due to health reasons and declared that Chief Justice Rafael Eka y Musquiz would have a provisional governor's authority. Latona's announcement was none too soon, however, because he died 
on September 18th, 1832. It's amazing we don't know about him very much. <laughs> well, I was in office, and then I got sick, and then I died. Then I died. <laughs> the end. Well, Juan Martin de Veramende is perhaps the most notable and famous of Texas Mexican governors. We've talked about him on several different episodes before. He was born on December 17th, 1778 in San Antonio de Bejar. He was a native Texan or a native uh, Tejano or a native uh, Texian, as they called them at the time. The second son, he was the second son of Fernando Veramende, who was a native of Spain, and Maria Josefa Granados, who was also a native of San Antonio. Fernando was a merchant, and he owned four tracts of irrigated land and, quote, one of the most substantial homes in town, and that house still stands. Fernando was killed in an Indian attack on May. Fernando was killed in an Indian attack in May of 1783 when Juan was just five years old. Fermendi and his siblings were placed under the oversight of Father Pedro Fuentes as part of his father's will. His mother soon married another Spaniard, Juan Martin de Amandar. Juan Martin de Amandarin, but died in 1790. Father Fuentes left the area, and Veramendi and his siblings were left in the care of their stepfather, a Mondarian. I'll just cut that Say last part out. Yeah. And his siblings were left in the care of their stepfather. In 1810, Veramendi married Maria Josefa Navarro, the sister of good, the sister of a good friend of his, a certain Jose Antonio Navarro, who had a thing or two to do with Texas history. Juan and Maria had a child the next year, followed by five more. They also raised their goddaughter, Juana Navarro, who became one of the few survivors of the Battle of the Alamo. By 1801, Veramendi was a merchant by trade and sole owner of the family home. The 1804 census indicates that he lived in the house with one of his brothers, a sister, and a five-year-old slave. He apparently had some legal education as he was also listed as a notary. In 1808, he was appointed Sindico Procurado for the Ayuntamiento, which gave him the authority to enforce its rules. Basically, a modern-day attorney general, which gave him the authority to enforce its rules. He expanded his business with a ranch along Ceboyo Creek. During the Mexican War of Independence in 1810, Vermindi joined other prominent men to plot a counter-revolt against Juan Bautista de las Casas' revolution in Bejar. The group captured de las Casas. Vermindi would receive a commendation from General... Nemesio Salcedo. Yeah, if you remember, we talked also late at different points about the mayor, which would be the alcalde in the Spanish system. Well, so in 1811, Juan was accosted by the Gutierrez McGee expedition while leading a trade caravan. And we talked about this way, 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 way back when. Go back to season one to our filibusters episode and the Gutierrez McGee, and the Gutierrez McGee expedition was one of the most successful uh, filibuster expedi- uh, invasions from the United States. Now, during this time, both of his both his wool and his mules were confiscated to aid in the expedition's revolution against Spanish authorities in Texas. It continued south while Veramendi continued to Natchitoches in Louisiana, where he stayed through the remainder of the invasion. At some point, it's not sure what or when he may have loaned money to either. Jean Lafitte, the pirate, or his brother Pierre. 
The rebellion in Texas was soon quelled, although not before General Salcedo was executed. And the new general, General Jose Joaquin de Heredondo, swept into Texas to root out and kill and drive out all the traitors and the invaders. And if you remember, uh, one of those soldiers under Arredondo was Santa Ana. In October, Arredondo issued a general pardon where he specifically excluded Veramende and even put a 250 peso price on his head as a leader of the rebellion although he wasn't actually a leader of the rebellion. His home was confiscated, and it was given to several army officers to use. In March 1814, Baramendi secured a partial pardon for himself and his brother Fernando. They were allowed to return to Mexico, though they were watched very carefully. He journeyed to Monterey to speak with Arredondo, who then dismissed the charges against him and authorized the return of his property. Veramendi and his friend Navarro accompanied a group of troops under the command of Jose de Castaneda on a journey to Galveston to investigate reports of foreigners landing there. Castaneda assigned Navarro and Veramendi, four soldiers, and three other civilians to go to Natchitoches to deliver some official correspondence. The leader of the soldiers, Navarro and Veramendi, left the others camped at the Calcasu River while they continued. Somewhere along the way, they ended up 100 miles from Opelousas for unknown reasons. When they returned, they were accused of illegally trading in Louisiana, but were not prosecuted. Sounds like they got lost. (laughs) Well, or they could be illegally trading in Louisiana, because at this time, by this time, Louisiana is part of the United States. And it was definitely against the law to trade between Spanish Mexico or Spanish Texas and the U.S. Louisiana Territory. I mean, rules remain to be broken, man. Yeah, that's yeah. true. International <laughs> in trade Texas, rules remain to be broken, man. And in Texas, apparently so. That seemed to be the case. Despite this bit of shady business, Fermendi was still elected as a councilman in 1820. The next year, he traveled with Erasmus Seguin and some others to Natchitoches to meet Stephen F. Austin. There, they were escorting Austin back to Bejar when they learned that Mexico had declared its independence from Spain. La Bahia was soon made the first official port of entry for Mexico and Texas, and Veramendi was named Collector of Import Taxes, which provided him an impressive income for a few years. He served in 1822 and 23 but left office when he was elected alternate deputy of the Texas Provincial Deputation to the Mexican National Constitutional Congress. The next two years, he was the first mayor of Bear, and he managed to resolve most of the disputes over the 1813 confiscation of property. Veramendi was named an alternate legislator to the Congress of the state of Cuya y Tejas in 1827. The same year, he received a land grant, but he discovered that it lay within Green DeWitt's colony. He petitioned for a grant of under the colonization law of March 24, 1825, so that he would not be classified as one of DeWitt's colonists. He renewed his petition in 1827 and was granted 11 leagues. He was elected mayor again in 1828, but tried to get out of it because of his position as an alternate legislator. The governor at the time, Jose Maria Viesca, refused to let him out of the task and instructed Iveramende to serve as mayor unless he was actually called to the legislature. Fernandez was nominated for vice governor in 1830. The results were close enough that a runoff between him and Ignacio de Arispe was required. Veramendi won the runoff by unanimous vote of the eight-man legislature. It was expected that he would move to Saltillo, but there was no record he was ever sworn in, and he continued to live in Bayar. 
On April 25, 1831, Veramendi's eldest daughter, Ursula Maria, married a certain James Bowie and what was said to have been the most elaborate social event in years. Juan formed a partnership with his son-in-law to establish cotton mills in Saltillo. Jose Marie de Latona, the governor of the province, died in September 1832, and Veramendi assumed office. Two months later, he was summoned to Saltillo to take over and was sworn in on December 24th. One of the changes he made while in office was to move the state capital back to Monclova. He also dealt with local official salaries, funding schools and the military, as well as establishing wells along a main road. In 1833, the government convened in the new but old capital of Monclova. By August, a cholera epidemic swept over the city. The water supply was corrupted and more than 450 people died from the disease. The Veramendis fell ill at the beginning of September, beginning with Juan's wife. The rest followed quickly, including Jim Bowie's wife, Ursula, and their young daughter. He had sent them there from San Antonio specifically to avoid cholera at their home in San Antonio. Juan died of the disease on September 7th. His body, along with the rest of his family, were buried in a mass grave at the Royal Hospital Cemetery. The next governor wasn't quite as dominant a figure as Veramendi. Francisco Viduri y Villasenor came from a political family. Villasenor, despite his pedigree, did not do much with his time in office. One proclamation from him on June 24, 1834, survives and largely deals with mundane issues such as extra sessions of the state congress. It includes comments on the federal system and religion and plans for discussing public finances. This broadside also contains lines written at the bottom and signed by later Governor Josea Maria Cantu. Just jot down whatever makes sense to you on there and sign it. It's good to go. <laughs> Juan Jose Alguzabal was born in 1781 in San Antonio to Juan Bautista Alguzabal. Juan Bautista was also a governor of Texas, though under Spanish and not Mexican rule, and that was from 1800 to 1805. After joining the Spanish army, Juan Jose spent most of his career in Coahuila. He was a captain, and like his father before him, an attached inspector in the Coahuila and Texas Presidios. He eventually made the rank of colonel. On August 30, 1834, during the controversy deciding between Saltillo or Monclova as the capital, Juan Jose was appointed interim governor of Texas by the Ayuntamiento of Monclova. The controversy was so contentious, it was eventually presented to Santa Ana himself, and the president left El Guzabal in office until Augustin Viesca took his place on May 12, 1835. El Guzabal served in the Mexican army during the Texas Revolution. I guess he was a popular with Mr. Santa Ana. Uh, he commanded the first company of Tamaulipas. He was captured on a- December 10, 1835 during the siege of Bayar. He was eventually released and returned to his home in Matamoros, Mexico, staying there until his death in 1840. Agustin Viesca was born in 1790 and elected governor of Cojia y Texas on September 9, 1834. The election was challenged by Juan José Aguzabal, the incumbent governor. The results were confirmed and Agustin took office on April 14, 1835, just at the time when the controversy over whether Saltillo or Monclova was going to be the capital. The debate was heated enough that Viesca assembled the militia to quell a revolt in Saltillo, but Martin Perfecto de Caz ordered him to disband the force as he supported Saltillo's claim. 
On April 21, 1835, the state legislature disbanded and told Augustine he could move the seat of government anywhere he wanted. Fiesca chose Behar and urged the Texans to rebel against the anti-Republican movement. On May 25th, he left Monclova with the archives, but when he arrived at Hacienda de Hermanas, he learned of orders not to cross into Texas. He returned into Monclova and disbanded the militia, but later, alongside fellow state officials Ben Milam and John Cameron, he attempted to sneak into Texas. He was captured on June 8th and sent as a prisoner to Monterey, only to escape five months later and go to Goliad with Dr. James Grant and Jose Maria Gonzalez. By the time Viesca got to Texas, anti-Mexican sentiment had risen to such a level that the local officials chose the Texas Declaration of Independence over continuing to demand a return to the Mexican Constitution of 1824. A side effect of this was that Viesca was not acknowledged as governor, which he protested with Stephen F. Austin. Nevertheless, when he arrived in Nacogdoches on January 5, 1836, he was well received. Viesca died on November 24, 1845. By 1835... Politics in Mexico was so chaotic that several men were governor of Texas either at the same time or at least with some overlap. Both José María Cantú and Marcial Larego had claimed to the title even while Agustín Viesca was fighting for his right to the office. Larego sent a broadside, the literary, not artillery kind, at Martin Perfecto Cause for interfering in the state since his appointment as commanding general of the eastern interior provinces. The same declaration accused former Governor El Guzibal for interfering in the electoral process. Not much is known of Jose Maria Cantu other than he was made governor of the state ad interim and was sworn in on the 12th of March as a replacement for Juan El Guzibal, who had resigned. Beyond that, all is known is that he was the last of Texas Mexican governors, because, of course, there were no more Mexican governors of Texas under Mexico after 1835. Remember the Alamo! <laughs> no, I was going to say, it's, it's the wacky, um, sort of, I mean, literal Wild West of Mexican governorship of Texas. <laughs> Yeah, it's. I think this this episode is full of some what ifs because, what if Vermindi had not died of the cholera mm-hmm. in 1833, three years before, two years before the revolution starts? He was definitely a conciliator. He was a he was a respected figure, well liked among the the Texians, the uh, Anglo Texans, uh, very close to to Stephen F. Austin, very you know fam- family with Jim Bowie. So. You know, would his moderating influence have helped smooth things over with uh, uh, the as the war party became more and more prominent? Or uh, would he have and where would he have broken and where would he have fallen uh, in terms of if the war did still was he was around when the war started? So that's that's one what if question, you know, does does Vermindi's death remove uh, a centrist uh, moderating influence, uh, an alternate path of keeping Texas part of Mexico. Uh, the other thing is, you know, the conflict between Viesca and uh, El Guzabal uh, in terms of Saltillo versus Monclova. You know, Viesca seemed to have agitated uh, and pushed things towards the. <laughs> he certainly pushed things towards. The, the break the war between the Texans and the Mexicans and the and the uh, the Santa Ana so you know 
if Vieska is not as bellicose and belligerent, uh, does uh, does that influence? Does it make the the path to war and to revolution happen as quickly? So, do you think? I mean, just looking at this, there's again you get the what ifs of things of, you know, was was Mexico. Was Texas as part of Mexico always doomed to be unstable based on the um, the rocky political landscape of Mexico at the time? Or is it just, again, like you said, the bad luck of these these guys who kind of... I mean, it feels like the Oprah, you get a car and you get a car and you're the governor and you're the governor and you're the governor. They're, they're, everybody's getting a turn at this job, but how effective can any one person be? I mean, I think Veramendi is the one that's closest to our heart and the one who we think of most of the time, but is, is this kind of a corollary to, as we said, if you want to understand early Texas history, you need to understand the previous 50 years of of Spanish and Mexican history that lead up to this revolution. Yeah, I think that it's it's interesting when you look at it, when you look at Texas history through the grand scope of things, there was a lot of tension in Texas in the 1700s between France and Spain. Uh, that was a major tension point. You know, Texas is at the at the outer edge of the Spanish Empire uh, and and later of the Mexican state. Uh, it's it's the furthest northeast. Uh, New Mexico is long much longer settled, uh, and it is right in the middle, so it's not as as unstable. California is on the west coast. It's furthest away from uh, foreign powers, so to speak. So Texas. You know, up in the 1700s, Texas is in conflict with Spain. Uh, it's a it's a conflict area between Spain and France. Then, after uh, the Seven Years' War and the, the French and Indian Wars, France loses all of its uh, it loses Louisiana, and Spain takes it over. And then, if you look for the next uh, 20 to 25 years, Texas uh, is not unstable. Texas is fine. Uh, there's the Comanches, and that's a problem. But if you look at Louisiana, there's a lot of conflict on, along the Mississippi River between first the English uh, colonies and then the, the new nation of America. And until the Louisiana Purchase, uh, Texas is okay, but it's Louisiana where the conflict area is because that's the outer edge of Spain. Then Louisiana Purchase, all of a sudden, there's another friction area. Texas now becomes the edge of the friction area. So I think the closeness to foreign powers. And Spain was always paranoid about interaction with foreign powers in terms of their territories. So there's there's always been that in 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 New Spain, Spanish American history. Uh, so that's I think that's a big cause of the of why Texas is a conflict area is because Louisiana opened up uh, and America forced its way, you know, moved into uh, the moved into the Louisiana territory very rapidly. And the perception from Spain was, oh, they're eyeing this territory. And then it was true that that's where the, you know, that's where all the filibusters came from is it, it happened at the same time as the rise of republicanism and revolution in Mexico. So I would say, I just glad that this episode gave us another chance to say Natchitoches. 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 <laughs> well, yeah. But yeah, I think it's interesting, uh, you know, the the idea of two separate uh, 
two separate capitals of Texas, of, of um, Coahuila, Texas, uh, and each one appointing their own governor uh, right, right on the eve of the revolution is pretty, pretty interesting. Well, uh, I mean, absolutely. So I it certainly ho- didn't help this, this situation. Well, I was just going to say, I hope people have really enjoyed walking through uh, this list of these interesting uh, men of Texas history and kind of the build-up piece and some familiar names to that puzzle. But it's one of those pieces that we don't study. I think, you know, more people have seen the Davy Crockett movie than probably could, you know, rattle off Veramendi or El Guzabal or any of these guys. So, you know, it's just it's interesting to know that there is this little piece of history that happened right before the revolution when it was all going down. And there's so much focus on what the uh, Anglo politics are, particularly from you know, our personal histories that we look at. It's just nice to see the other side a little bit. Yeah. Good stuff. Also, it seems like a terrible job because yep. you might die or get moved or get fired <laughs> or get cholera. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or get scouted by Comanche. Yeah. 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 That wraps things up for today. You could find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. Big thanks to our good friend James Abendroth for helping us to research and write this episode. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram at Blackguard Press and find his fiction work at blackguardpress.com. If you like this show, tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.